Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca. Today's scriptures readings come from Proverbs. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Proverbs 11.3 Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselor, there is safety. Proverbs 11.14 Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Proverbs 16.3 The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 16.9 Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Proverbs 28.26 The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Proverbs 29.25 You may be seated. And as you're being seated this morning, let's pray together. Father, we need your help by your Holy Spirit to make wise decisions in this life. And so often, we've made the wrong ones. We thank you that in Jesus, there is redemption, there is hope for people perpetually making wrong decisions. We thank you that you come to us and you give us all we need to be wise today, not wise according to the world, but wise according to the word of the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if I haven't met you, my name's Jake. I'm part of the team. We're continuing this morning in our time in Proverbs. And today we're talking about decision-making. Decision-making in Proverbs. So I'm going to ask you, you don't have to answer, it's hypothetical. How do you make decisions? How do you make decisions in your life? Uh, perhaps you're uh, that kind of person who takes a, a supernatural approach to decision making. And so you look at the tea leaves or how the clouds are arranged and then based on sort of how things have aligned supernaturally, you make your decisions that way. Or, or maybe it's not about what's written in the sky for you. Maybe it's all about the spreadsheet. You're a very rational, logical person. And so whatever the spreadsheet says, that's how we make our decision. Or maybe it's not about the sky or or the spreadsheet. Maybe it's about that gut feeling, that emotion. Do I have peace about this? How do I feel about this? Maybe that's how you make decisions this morning. If we're being honest, we're probably all a mixture of all three of those. But, But there is a growing fourth category, particular among my generation, and it's this category. Ready? The kind who are faced with a decision... And they do nothing. You're, you're, you're paralyzed. One of the odd quirks of the age that we live in is that faced with this blessing, and it really is a blessing, of an enormous group of options before us, we're overwhelmed. 
We're, we're, we're undone, and we cannot decide. Soren Kierkegaard said that anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. Anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. How do you make your decisions? Supernaturally? Rationally? Logically? In your gut? Emotionally? Or do you just stop? Because anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. This morning, as we continue in Proverbs, we're going to see that the divinely inspired sages have much wisdom for us to glean on the topic of decision-making, how we make decisions, particularly as followers of Jesus, those who live in the fear of the Lord. And they're going to propose to us a number of questions that we can ask. Ready? If you want to write these down, you can. But the first question we should ask in our decision-making process is this. Ready? Here it is. Question one. Is my decision righteous or wicked? Is it righteous or wicked? The question here is really this. Am I choosing the good thing or the bad thing? Am I walking in the path of integrity or deceit? Now we're going to nuance this in a moment, but look at Proverbs 11, verses 3 to 6 with me. There Solomon writes, The integrity of the upright, listen, guides them. But the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless, listen, keeps his way straight. But the wicked falls by his own wickedness. The the righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous, listen, are taken captive by their lust. First question, is my decision righteous or wicked? Now, in some ways, I get it. In some ways, this is the easiest question we'll consider this morning. When faced with the decision to steal or not steal, kill or not kill, cheat or or not cheat, all of us, even those this morning who are not followers of Jesus, understand that to not kill is better than to kill. To not steal is better than stealing. But as Proverbs makes clear, despite the obvious nature of this question, the difficulty comes on two levels with this first discerning question of ours. And the first level is this. The first nuance is this. First, we must recognize that the wise path is marked out not just by refraining from doing what's evil, but by practicing what Proverbs calls righteousness. The wise path is marked out, not just by refraining, not just by not doing something, but by actively doing something, what Proverbs calls righteousness. See, in Proverbs, this word righteous is used in relation to decisions that we make. Decisions wherein we disadvantage ourselves in order to advantage somebody else. Think about that. Righteousness in Proverbs is not about a vertical relationship between God and man, but it's a horizontal term. And it's about us disadvantaging ourselves, going without, feeling the pinch, in order to advantage somebody else, to serve somebody else, to bless the wider community. And so here's just a case study. Ready? Proverbs 21. Proverbs 21, 25, 26. Here's a good proverb for us. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long the sluggard craves and craves, but the righteous gives 
and does not hold back. So, listen. The righteous in Proverbs does not just faithfully go to work, though they do faithfully go to work. The righteous in Proverbs is not only content with what they have, though they are content with what they have. The righteous gives and does not hold back. The righteous gives and they feel it. They go without something they'd rather have. And because the righteous make these intentional decisions to disadvantage themselves for the advantage of the other, everyone, all of society, is better off for it. And so Bruce Waltke, who's like the guy when it comes to Proverbs, he says this, picture it. The inspired sage's conception of righteousness, he says, is socially transformative. Socially transformative. It transforms the city of man into the city of God from a culture that is metaphorically red, dripping with blood, to a culture that is green with life. Imagine this. Imagine we, as followers of Jesus, walked around in this world actively looking for ways to disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of the other. So the question, is it righteous or is it wicked, is, is nuanced by that. Is, is it righteous? It's a bit, bit, bit harder now. The, the, the second nuance is this. This first discerning question, is it righteous or is it wicked, is complicated by our desires, by our loves. Look at Proverbs 11, verse 6 again. The righteousness of the upright delivers them but the treacherous, how does Proverbs talk about the treacherous? They're taken captive. They're, they're prisoner to their lust, to their desires. Choosing righteousness is not only complicated by personal sacrifice, it's complicated by our love of wickedness. Our love of advantaging ourselves to the disadvantage of somebody else. See, listen, Nobody goes on Tinder intentionally looking to dehumanize someone, to use someone and then discard them like a napkin. No, that wickedness, that disadvantaging another person for our own supposed advantage is the result of being enslaved to a craving for sex or belonging or companionship. And, and nobody lies to their boss about the hours they've worked with an intentional aim to take down the company, with an intentional aim of making somebody else's job harder. No, that wickedness, that disadvantaging another for our own supposed advantage is the result of loving sleep or something else more than that person, more than those people. See, this first discerning question, is it righteous or is it wicked, is like a cold shower for us this morning. It wakes us up to the reality of our hearts. So if you ascribe this morning to, to the rational approach, when, when I listed off the various approaches to decision-making, you're like, yeah, I'm the rational spreadsheet person. Just, just listen to me for a second. Listen for a moment. You should question the most obvious or rational decisions in your life, recognizing that in each person, there is likely something else going on underneath the surface. There's something happening in our hearts. 
We are loving and longing for something in all the decisions we make. And so, for example, here's just an example I chose at random. For example, based on a particular view of the world, it is only rational to leave the city and go live in the suburbs. It's only rational. Get a bigger house, right? Have some peace and quiet. More room to play for the kids. Only rational. And it might be. It might be what the Lord is calling you to do. But pause for a moment. Could it be that for you, righteousness looks like staying in this city? Could it be that righteousness looks like persisting as a good neighbor and resisting this supposed exodus to greener pastures? Hear me. And don't mishear me. It's not inherently wicked to live in the suburbs. That's the wrong application. Nor is it inherently righteous to live in the city. All I'm saying is that for followers of Jesus, the Lord asks that we get to the heart, the heart of our decisions. For, as Proverbs will also say, the Lord will not be fooled. You you, you can't pull the wool over the Lord's eyes. Proverbs 21, verse 2. Every way of man is right in his own eyes. But the Lord weighs the heart. The Lord knows our hearts. Take another look. Is your decision righteous or wicked? Here's another question of the heart. Second question. Who am I afraid of? Who am I afraid of? Who am I afraid of? Fear, whether we admit to it or not, lies at the center of of much, if not all, of our decision-making. Isn't that true? What will my parents think of me if I go to this school? What will my friends think of me if I buy this car or wear this outfit or do this thing? Or let's raise the stakes a little bit. What will everyone in my life think about me if I become a follower of Jesus, if I identify as a Christian? Proverbs calls this this crippling fear that invades our decision-making, that that paralyzes us. Proverbs calls this the fear of man. The fear of man. It's not living in the fear of the Lord. It's living in the fear of man. And so Proverbs 29, 25, a, a verse that I've had to memorize The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Now, maybe that word snare is not particularly ominous to you. It doesn't sound all that bad. But in Proverbs, we can understand these aphorisms, these these pithy sayings, by realizing that each line is contrasting the line above it or or, or below it. And so, for example, the person who who fears the Lord or trusts in the Lord is is contrasted with the person who fears man in this aphorism or this pithy saying. Likewise, if the person who trusts in the Lord is safe, then the person who fears man is what? In terrible danger. In life-threatening danger. 
Snare here is deadly snare. Like watching alone and they're catching a rabbit and the rabbit dies kind of snare. That kind of snare. That's the idea. What's the danger of fearing people in our decision making? Well, there's the obvious danger of finding yourself going along with the wicked, right? Of just doing what everybody's doing in order to fit in. There's that very obvious danger in Proverbs. But also, for those of us committed to pursuing righteousness, here's what we do. We come to define righteousness and the good life or the good thing as, listen, what pleases other people. What makes other people happy. And so what's righteousness? Whatever makes you like me. Whatever makes you not leave this church. Whatever makes you say nice things about me and, and not sharp words towards me. That, that becomes my sense and my grounding for righteousness. Can, can you relate to this? Is this just me? Righteousness ultimately becomes a matter of pleasing other people. And really, pleasing other people becomes a matter, ultimately, of salvation. How am I saved? How do I rest at the end of the day? People like me. No one's mad with me. My, my, my wife likes me. Ed Welch, he's a biblical counselor. He wrote this. This fear of man becomes fear that is consumed with itself and for a time forgets God, just forgets God, forgets the fear of the Lord, right? It becomes a fear that when activated, rules your life. And if you, if, if you struggle with this like I do, you know like rules your life is an understatement, like dominates your life, oppresses your life. In such a state, what are we doing? What's ultimately happening? We trust for salvation in others. We never say it because that's foolish. But actually, my peace and my well-being depends on your acceptance of me. It's fear of man. Everything, including our decision-making, becomes consumed with fearing other people. But, but here's the most dangerous thing. The most dangerous thing is this. When it comes to fear, Proverbs speaks in a binary way. You cannot fear God and fear man at the same time. And fearing God is the key to everything. So, so listen to how Solomon speaks towards those who don't fear the Lord. It's, it's disastrous. He says, Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm. And your calamity comes like a whirlwind when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I, this is wisdom, I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because, listen, how did this all happen? How did we get down this road? Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Would have none of my counsel and despise all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. Who are you afraid of? Who are you afraid of? Who are you afraid of when you choose that job? Who are you afraid of when you choose that house, that church, to have kids or not have kids? Who are you afraid of? We could put it like this. Who are you living your life 
under the watchful eye of, under the gaze of, before the face of. The Christian lives their life before the face, under the watchful gaze of their loving Heavenly Father. Amy Joseph, she's an author. She has this very helpful book that I'm going to recommend this morning called Demystifying Decision-Making. It's so good. You should buy it. You should get it. You should give it to other people. In that book, she writes this. She says, while servile fear, that's the fear of like a slave, right? Servile fear makes us its slave. It's a slave to like like a, a cruel, heartless master. Healthy Christian fear however, keeps us walking in the freedom of Christ. Filial fear or family fear, the fear of a a son to a loving father. Family fear reminds us that we make all our decisions coram deo or in the presence or before the face of God. We make all our decisions coram deo just as children are more apt to make wise choices in the presence of a a trusted adult, that's true in my house, healthy fear that we live coram Deo instructs and informs our decisions. Coram Deo, before the face of God. Who do you fear in your decisions? Do you fear a good God who loves us and knows what's best for us? A God to whom one day you will ultimately have to give an account of your life? Or do you fear Aunt Hazel and her disapproving text messages? Who do you fear? I don't have an Aunt Hazel, by the way, if you're wondering. You might. Third thing, third question. What are godly people saying? What are godly people saying? Let me bring you into a real-life decision that I made this week. Let's make this very practical. Here it is. This Thursday morning... I was having my um, semi-annual existential meltdown uh, that I did not know how to write a sermon anymore. And it happens every once in a while. I go to my wife. She's laughing right now because it happens fairly frequently. I just forget. I don't know who I am anymore. don't know what my life is going to do. And I start you know, searching monster.ca for other jobs. I'm very unemployable, not helpful at all. And so I'm going through this existential crisis, th- this meltdown. And what's more... I'm tired, and so I'm frustrated. But more still, I was writing a sermon on a topic I feel very uh, ill-equipped to deal with. I just make decisions. I don't think about how I'm making those. I just do it, right? So I was at this crossroads. I had a decision to make this past Thursday morning. It's a real decision. On one hand, I could do this. On one hand, I could just call it in. I could say... I'm going to do work that requires less mental capacity. I'm going to answer emails. I'm going to prepare for the fall. I'm going to schedule teams. I'm going to go on a visitation. I'm just going to be with people and be a listening ear. Less mental capacity. I could could do that. And I could just dust off a sermon that I preached four years ago in Proverbs on money. And none of you remember it. I know that. And no one would be the wiser. I could just do that this week. It's one decision. Or, on the other hand, on the other hand, I could, I could call a trusted friend. I could call a fellow preacher who's experienced exactly what I've experienced, 
who knows exactly what I'm feeling. I can say, hey, here's what I'm feeling. I want to give up. I want to leave the ministry. I want to go work as a ranch hand in Alberta, pays a lot of money. I Googled that this week. And you know what he said to me? He's like, give it, give it an hour. Pray. Have your Bible open. And just, just give it an hour. And, and, and see if breakthrough comes. Obviously, he's right. Obviously, that's what happened. Obviously, I needed to hear that in that moment. But I couldn't in myself come to that conclusion. I needed to hear from somebody else the wise thing I should do in that moment when, when it wasn't a black and white situation, where it wasn't a matter of righteousness or wickedness, where it was very gray. I needed to hear from a friend. See, Proverbs tells us time and time again that if we're going to be wise people who make wise decisions, we need godly people in our life. And not just in our life, but like uncomfortably in our life. Like people who know our finances. And people who know our ugly bits. And, and, and people who know all that we think and all that we desire. And people can say, Jake, you're wrong. And Jake, I love you, but you're an idiot. And Jake, calm down. You do this every six months. Proverbs says in Proverbs 15, the ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself. But he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. Proverbs 12, verse 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 19, 20. Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Proverbs 24, 26. For by wise guidance, you can wage your war and in abundance of counselors, there is victory. If only, if only we would listen to the godly in our life, how much heartache would we be spared? How much heartache would our church be spared? If only we would listen to the godly in our life. And so I just want to talk to the emotional people in the room right now. And I'm an emotional person, so this is, I'm in this category too. Emotional people, like me, like you. Those of you who want to choose a spouse or hometown or job on the basis of a fleeting feeling, can I just have a word with us for a moment? First, I want to just bring us quickly to Proverbs 4. Like, Stay with me. In Proverbs 4, we find a group of people who are so sure of the trustworthiness of their emotions. Listen, Proverbs 4 says this. Solomon warns, Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not go in it. Turn away from it and pass on. Listen to this. Verse 16. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. Here's the thing. Inner peace is a terrible barometer for the rightness or the wrongness of that thing you're trying to decide. It's a terrible barometer. It's a terrible North Star. It's a terrible compass. Can I say it again? It's a terrible barometer. Solomon tells us in Proverbs 4 that the wicked are so upside down, their desires so twisted, their conscience is so silenced, 
that the reverse is true of them. They lay awake having done something right. I didn't like that. And they sleep like babies. They have great inner peace on the heels of evil. Your emotional life by itself is a terrible barometer of the rightness or wrongness of something. That's the first thing. Second thing. If every godly person in your life is saying it's a bad idea, I just want to say it. It's probably a bad idea. Can you just hear that? If every godly person in your life is saying it's a bad idea, it's probably, not always, but most likely a bad idea. And you need to heed that counsel. Now, let's nuance this. We need to choose or curate our counselor's wisely. There are a few considerations when uh, bringing to the table your group of chosen counselors. Like, for instance, are they indeed godly? Do they love Jesus? Do they fear the Lord? Do they give counsel from a place of living quorum Deo? Or are these people prone to pleasing men? Or, here, here's one, are they prone to flattery? Flattery. Proverbs 26, 28 says this, A lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. In a moment of decision, when it's not black or white but gray, the friend who whispers sweet nothings to you, who always takes your side, who thinks you walk on water, who always thinks you're the victim, that friend is useless. That friend is useless. They're, they're actually worse than useless. They're a danger to you. They're a danger to your soul. They'll work ruin in your life. So choose your counselors wisely. How about this? Amongst those godly folk, is there a diversity of age? A diversity of perspective? Remember, wisdom in Proverbs flows downstream. It comes from God to the mature, typically older, and from the mature to the youth, to us youngins, to us kids. There are some people in this church, and I'm not going to name them right now because that would embarrass them, but there are some people in this church you should be beating down their door to learn from, to sit under, to listen to their life stories from. The foolish youth who thinks they have nothing to glean or gain from the wise, mature brother or sister in Christ is truly that a fool. So ask, what are these godly people saying? Now let's nuance this a bit. Will asking godly people what you should do always yield a foolproof answer? Always yield a clear path? Elizabeth and Jim Elliot, some of you know them, were missionaries to a remote uh, people group in Ecuador. And as some of you know, Jim uh, was killed early on in their missionary work to these people in this remote area. And Elizabeth is now this, this young widowed mother, multiple children, was being urged by godly people in her life, right? Right? very wisely, to return stateside 
to come back to where her family was, where her home was, and not go with her kids by herself back to this tribe who have just murdered her husband. Come home sounds very wise. Come home sounds very reasonable. However, Elizabeth, certain the Lord was calling her to go back, returned. Listen to how she wrote of this time of discernment for her. It's very instructional for us. She said, My awareness of God's will for me, far from making me deaf to godly advice, made me listen the more carefully and wait with greater patience and quietness for the final signal. See, Elizabeth did not ignore godly advice. She, in this matter where there was complete Christian freedom to go right or go left, had just asked a fourth and final question. Here it is. Ready? Fourth question. What is God's Spirit saying? What is God's Spirit saying? The New Testament Christian, the New Testament Christian has been given a gift that would have been the envy of Old Testament believers. That would have been the envy of Solomon. We've been given the indwelling presence and therefore indwelling leading of the Spirit of God. So so listen to how Jesus speaks of the Spirit and what he does in John 16. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but but whatever he hears he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. This is Jesus speaking. He will glorify Jesus, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So so how does the Spirit guide us? Listen, the Spirit guides us through God's Word. If you're reading the Bible and something punches you in the chest, and you're like, oh, that's the Spirit speaking to you. The Spirit guides us and leads us through his church. A brother and sister in Christ comes to you and says, brother, sister, walk over here. Don't do this. This is the Spirit speaking to you. The Spirit also calls us into rational, logical thinking, right? Don't jump off the cliff. Stay on dry land. But he also leads us and guides us, we could say, and this is where we get a bit uncomfortable, Mystically, mystically, we learn to walk by the Spirit, as Jesus talks about earlier in John, as we get to know ourselves, the voice of our shepherd who guides us. And so we have his word, we, we, we have his church, but we also have his indwelling presence, his, his indwelling leading voice. And so Jesus says in John 10, the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, listen, and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Which means that sometimes our decisions don't always make sense. That sometimes our decisions go completely against what is sensible to the world. So when we planted this church four years ago, there were many people saying, Jake, don't plant a church. It's hard work. You have to set up chairs. 
Create teams, right? Everything from scratch. Don't, don't do it. Just go and be a pastor at an established church someplace. Right? Read your books. Read your books some more. I don't know what happens. I've only church planted. But the Spirit was clearly leading not just me, but a group of us to plant a church despite the heartaches, despite the difficulties we have and will experience in this place. Christians are led all the time to do things that are contrary to the wisdom of this world. You know why that is? Because our Savior and our salvation did something contrary to this world. And he leads us in a new way according to his cross. Listen, here's what we must see about all this. Here's the most important point. If you missed the last three questions, forget about them and just remember this. Wisdom is less about being acquainted with certain principles and more about becoming intimately acquainted with a certain person. Getting to know Jesus. Sitting with Jesus. Loving and knowing you're loved by Jesus. A person in Jesus who decided to forego the cross or undergo the cross that we might live, that we might have salvation. See, pull back for a moment. Every one of us has made and will make stupid decisions. We made them this morning and we're going to make a stupid decision this afternoon. And as we've seen, for those of us who fear man, oftentimes we're less paralyzed in the face of our decisions. But Jesus comes and he shows us what true decision-making looks like. Look at this. Though wise, Jesus' decision to not accord with human wisdom or reason, to leave his heavenly privileges, to be born in human likeness, and is crucified. Jesus lives by a different wisdom, makes decision according to a a different wisdom, a cross-shaped wisdom. Jesus' plan, when it becomes apparent to his disciples, his most trusted counselors, is universally decried as nonsense. Don't do that, Jesus. Your movement can be much more effective if you live. And don't get crucified like a criminal in a shameful way. And though Jesus experienced deep emotion, deep emotion, Jesus' emotion on its own was not a guide or a compass. Remember, Jesus is in the garden the night before he's about to be crucified, and he's in deep internal anguish. Like anguish we have not felt before. You and I have never experienced before. Jesus doesn't have internal peace. He's not feeling zen before he goes to the cross. He's anguished. He's struggling. He's tormented. Jesus' righteous decision to disadvantage himself for our advantage, to shed his blood for our salvation, is what we need this morning, is the good news for us this morning who are facing decisions. For Jesus' good decision and righteous decision covers a multitude of bad ones. Maybe you came this morning and your life is just one bad decision after another. Good news. Make one good decision today. Trust in Jesus. And his good decision covers over all your bad ones. All your terrible ones. All my terrible ones. 
makes forgiveness possible for people who spent their whole lives walking the way of the wicked. See, Jesus not only shows us true decision-making, he not only covers over my and your bonehead decisions, he makes good and right decision-making possible today for us. Listen, by giving us his spirit, who helps us hear our shepherd's voice in the church, in God's word, in prayer, we now, Paul tells us, here's the amazing reality of the New Testament. Paul tells us, we now have the mind of Christ. We can make decisions with the same decision-making paradigm that Jesus had, that Jesus has. Our job today is to apprentice ourselves, not to principles, but to a person. And when we apprentice ourselves to Jesus in peace times, when wartime comes, when the day of decision comes, we just respond intuitively as those who know Jesus, as those who know his character, as those who have been shaped by him. So here's the last thing, and then we'll stand in response. There might be a lingering objection still. And maybe it goes like this. What if your decision is not one of righteousness or wickedness? where the scripture gives you permission to walk out a multitude of options? And what if, best you can tell, it's not a decision you're making from the fear of man? And what if, when you go to prayer, the Lord doesn't speak to you clearly on this? Seems to be at least a bit silent on this. And because it's all these things, what if the counsel you've received is particularly open-handed? Could go either way. Or maybe it all lands in the same place. But, but again, you'd be like, oh, maybe I could go over here. What do you do? What do you do in those moments? Some of you are there right now. What do you do in those moments? Well, I'm going to tell you exactly what to do. So take out your pen and paper. Here is the secret advice you've been waiting for. Here's the tip I typically hide behind a paywall. Here it is. Ready? Do whatever you want. I'm so serious. Do whatever you want. Just do something. Just do something. You have been graciously given boundaries to play in. And you know them. Play in them. You've been told what's righteous and wicked. You've been given a church to discern these big life steps with. And you've been given Jesus a spirit. And so stop obsessing over the next right move. Just do something. Again, just do something. This is the tremendous freedom that Jesus affords his followers. Our significance is secure. Our future is secure. Everything is secure in Jesus. So go, and as St. Augustine famously said, love God and do whatever you please. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we've been given our lane to run in. And to the envy of saints before the cross and before the resurrection, we've been given your Holy Spirit in a measure. And he helps us. He guides us. He leads us according to your word. 
and in your church. And as we pray, so would I pray that you'd help us to be people who in the face of decisions are not paralyzed, but who walk in the freedom that you have afforded us. Who knowing that provided the decision is righteous, provided the decision is done quorum Deo, we can do no wrong. Knowing that you'll correct, you'll take, you'll make straight any misstep. And so we trust in your sovereignty. We trust that you hold all things together and you will bring all things, even our missteps, perhaps especially our missteps, to your glory and to your fame. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.